0: Well, hello there. Welcome to episode two of Hodgepod with Rob Furnett. And I have a special guest today, Colonel Craig Watson, who was in the Marines with a distinguished career. So for the next hour, we're going to discuss his career, his deployments and what it meant to be a Marine. And I can tell you it is a distinguished career. Colonel Watson was commissioned as a second lieutenant in 1992 after attending basic school and infantry officer course. He was assigned to the 3rd Battalion, 3rd Marine Regiment at Marine Corps Base, Kaneohe Bay, Hawaii, where he served as Rifle Platoon Commander, Executive Officer, and Assistant Operations Officer. During this period, he completed two six-month deployments overseas in support of the theater security efforts in the Asia-Pacific region. Well, Colonel Craig Watson. Welcome to Hodgepod and this is episode two and secondly thank you for your distinguished career in the service and welcome.
1: Well thank you Robin and again thanks for uh, having me on.
0: Excellent, excellent. Well thank you so much. So we're going to go ahead and get started. So you had a great career, a distinguished career in the Marines and when you think back now what was the main reason why you enlisted or you wanted to get into the Marines. I find that fascinating because your career is in the next hour we're going to find out is, is off the chart. So how did you become a Marine?
1: Yeah. You know, I think everybody has different reasons for uh, why they joined the military and and certainly why they joined different branches of service. Uh, I first point to my family. Uh, Obviously they had an influence. My, my father uh had spent 25 years in the marine corps he went in um, uh, enlisted in, in 1946 and, and you know served all the way up through vietnam grandfather was in during world war 1 uh, my mom had been in the, the navy that, and she met my my father in the, while she was in the navy mm-hmm. uh most of her side of the family was in the navy i had an uncle in the army my brother had been in the air force you know my uncles another uncle in the coast guard so you know i i saw um a lot of the military growing up uh, although they never once pressured me or made any suggestion that i should join the military but you know you watch the example that they set and i grew up on a lot of the bases uh in the new england area you know spent a lot of time there at pease air force base and Hanscom field and fort Devons just because my father you know had access to the bases a retired retired marine so when you see the professionalism you know and the courtesy and stuff of, of the way people carry themselves on the bases uh, you know, that appealed to me, uh, at a young age growing up. So, um, that in conjunction with, you know, just wanting to do some public service, uh, that, that always appealed to me, any public service, but certainly the military and the Marine Corps kind of stood out for me, just the, the way my personality was and, and, you know, just the things that I found interesting and, and felt that I would be good at.
0: So, yeah. So the, the interesting part about it is you, you had a family background in the service and you wanted to join the Marines. Um, how was your path to the Marines? Because when I think of the Marines and I think of boot camp, you enlist, but you had a different path into the Marines, which I find I never knew until uh, we discussed it uh, earlier. Um, what was your path to the Marines? Because I find that uh, quite quite interesting.
1: Yeah, you know, in high school, uh, as, you, as you probably remember, you know, I, I had a lot, I had a lot of energy, um, yes, and sir. I meant well. But, but you know, I, I met well, but, you know, like a lot of 15, 16, 17-year-olds, <laughs> right? You just don't know, you know, you don't always know how to channel it towards the right things. And, you know, it's interesting. General Mattis tells the exact same story of his, you know, him growing up. So uh, as I was leaving high school, you know, I, I really wanted to go into the Marine Corps. I wanted to go down to the local recruiter and just transition into the Marine Corps and go off uh, like my father did and, and, and his father did. Um, but both of my parents were, uh, very clear that, you know, they wanted, it wasn't that they didn't like that, uh, approach, but they wanted me to have options. So they, they really, uh, you know, encouraged me to go to college first. So, uh, I went, I went kicking and screaming and, uh, it was a great decision. You know, I went there and I went in through an officer program, uh, through University of Connecticut. They didn't have an ROTC program, uh, that, that associated with the Marines there. so. The Marine Corps had a program where you could go to Officer Candidate School your junior year, uh, and if you made it through the ten-week course, you were selected for that. Uh, then you'd be commissioned as a, as a lieutenant upon the day of graduation, and that was the program that I ultimately uh, pursued. Um, so when I graduated in '92 at, uh, at UConn, uh, I immediately drove up to Portsmouth, New Hampshire, was where it was which was where I had signed up through the officer selection officer and pinned on the rank there. And then shortly thereafter, headed down to Quantico, Virginia, to uh, to start my Marine Corps career.
0: And basically, when you went to your you started your career for the Marines in Quantico, what was your first assignment, and what was uh, what was entailed with that?
1: Yeah, when you go there, uh, you know you go through the ten weeks of OCS, and 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 that only gets you to to pin on as an officer. And you you know, like I said, after you uh, graduate from college, then then you have to go into where the real training starts. So you go through twenty six weeks of what we call the basic course. All Marine officers have to go through it. It's where you learn a whole host of skills, uh, and you get kind of a, a broader picture of what all the different occupational specialties in the Marine Corps do. You get a little taste of aviation and artillery and armor and such. And while you're there, you get to, you know, shoot, you, or you get to, um, request, you know, what your top five, um, occupational specialties are you want. So for me, um, I had been competing for an aviation, um, spot because there, you know, my talking with my father and he, and he thought that would be a, a good approach because I could use it when I got out, you know, to, w- whether that be with the airlines or whatnot, but, uh, I, I, my heart was really with the infantry. Uh, that's really how I envisioned my career going. That's what he had done. That's what his father had done. And that's really kind of how I associated. You know, when I thought about Marines in general, I, I, you know, always gravitated towards the infantry. So, I requested to be an infantryman. I was selected for that. And then, following that twenty-six weeks, I then went uh, and did ten-week course down at Infantry Officer Course. Uh, And then upon that, then you go, uh, I went off to my first assignment after there, but you're basically, you do an entire year of just training. If you tack on that 10 weeks of OCS Mm. before you, before you even get in front of troops. So it's, it's a very intense year of just, just getting you to where you need to be before you can get to the operating forces.
0: So what happened after you went through the, the year training, where did you first start out?
1: Uh, well, I, I asked to go to Hawaii and, uh, contrary to what people probably think it wasn't, uh, for the, the palm trees and, uh, and, and, the sun. Uh, I did it solely because I, I knew that the Marines that were, were going out to Hawaii were able to deploy twice, uh, in, in the tour vice, uh, one time, which most of the other, uh, the, our uh, counterparts at Camp Lejeune and Camp Pendleton would do just because of their rotation cycle there. So, uh, I, I wanted to get those two six month tours in cause I really wanted to get overseas and, and, and really wanted to be up close to, you know, where things were happening so uh requested that and, and wound up again in Kaneohe Bay Hawaii uh and I was probably only on the island of you know on Oahu for maybe a year out of those three because mm-hmm. when I wasn't deployed I was in the Sierra we did uh, two stints in the Sierra Mountains in California doing high altitude cold weather training uh we did a, a month-long exercise in Alaska and you're constantly on the other islands doing live fire training and such or, or I or at sea on a ship doing small boat raids and things like that so really only spent probably 10 to 12 months on hawaii most of the time was overseas or doing some kind of training in preparation to go overseas
0: man so you're all over the place you're in uh, you're in the mountains you're in the cold you're doing training you're doing these deployments uh how tough was that being away from family during that or in, in, did, it, did the time go by fast or what uh what was that like Yeah.
1: At that time, you know, I wasn't married. Uh, some officers, some Marines are, uh, I I wasn't married at the time. Um, you know, as you get later on in your career, it it does obviously start to take a toll on family. Uh, certainly after nine 11, you know, that accelerated a lot, you know, after nine 11, I had two stints during my career where, uh, I did three deployments in five years and, uh, you know, the deployments you're away away you're physically away but oftentimes people forget the pre-deployment training you're pretty much not home at all either because you're in the field uh most of the week doing training and and staying out in the field you know Uh, so it's a lot of time away from from family and certainly if you have kids uh that's brutal it can be brutal on them so um you know, it it wears on you. But uh, during that period, you know, when I was a young lieutenant and captain before I had been married, you know, I I didn't really have family that I had to think about. So I was, <laughs> I was volunteering to do pretty much anything, and and was eager to just get out and, and and maximize the the opportunities as they presented themselves.
0: One thing I find fascinating is you're you're actually doing the training, but you're also serving the country. There had to be some pride there while you were doing that, uh, knowing that you were uh, serving your country in that process. And then number two, being ready and training for any deployment that you had, uh, it's just not sitting around waiting. You're actually doing it in case you have to get into a situation. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. You're, you're always training. Um, you know, you think of a, a sports analogy, I guess, right. Where, uh, you know, even if it's not the regular season, uh, you're, you know, your athletes are out there training constantly. Um, and, and that's really what you're doing in the Marine Corps is in and, and, and all the services, quite honestly, uh, that, that kind of just goes, uh, unnoticed oftentimes. You, 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 have to stay sharp and there's so many different things that you have to focus on. There isn't just one thing. Uh, there, there's, there's literally hundreds of things that you have to not only master, but you have to stay current on them, whether that's first aid or, and then depending on where you're going. Uh, Because, you you know, depending on your deployment, you could be geared towards, you know, if you're going to Afghanistan, that's different training than you're going to be doing in Iraq. Mm -hmm. And that's different training that you might be doing than if you were to go someplace like the Ukraine. Right. In that kind of scenario. So you're constantly, constantly trying to stay current and stay sharp for when the time comes that you get the call.
0: And you also have to have everything ready to go. You have to have equipment. You have to have you can't not leave anything behind. You have to be ready at all times. Back up, and I'm sure that was always uh, people who were in charge of that. Was that the case?
1: yeah, the commanders are you know so anytime you're in a command position, you know like if you're a platoon commander or a company commander or a battalion commander you're you're ultimately responsible for everything everything that your unit does or fails to do that means your equipment readiness uh, that means the conditioning of your marines, the training level of your marines, the proficiency and a wide range of skills so uh, yeah all, all that stuff is just second nature it, it it's a lot uh you know that, that that's on your plate, and the marines are again it marines at every level are doing that, and they're you know uh there there aren't a lot of times where you're sitting on your hands doing nothing, and as the deployment gets closer, certainly you're you're really ramping up,
0: yeah, we're gonna talk about that a little bit later in the podcast, uh getting ready to uh cross over for Iraqi freedom into uh Iraq from Kuwait. that's one uh area that we're going to talk about which is fascinating uh so in 1996 colonel Watson was assigned to the marine corps recruit depot san diego california where he served as a series commander with kilo and lima companies third recruit training battalion and commanding officer of fox company Second Recruit Training Battalion. And during this period, he led individual training that transformed over 3,000 new recruits into the United States, uh, the Marines, excuse me. And uh, basically, uh, you know, people who work like in a situation where they're a manager, they manage probably 10, 15, maybe 20 people. But you had a situation where you're training thousands of recruits to become Marines And that is a huge responsibility and a tremendous honor in the same breath. How would you, uh, how would you uh, evaluate that?
1: Yeah, it was a great tour. It wasn't my first choice. Uh, You know, I wanted to go back to the operating forces, but uh, you know, it it, it kind of opened up uh, an opportunity and, um, you know, so I went there, and I, I went to uh, Marine Corps, uh, Corps Recruit Depot, San Diego. You know, the Marine Corps has two of them. Paris Island's probably the more famous one that everybody remembers from, you know, Full Metal Jacket, and uh, that's that's where my father and grandfather had gone through. Mm. But um, you know, you you go through these these cycles where you have recruits in, and it's a twelve-week cycle, and um, it, it varies depending on the time of year. Sometimes you get two hundred and you know, two hundred or so recruits at a time. I've had uh, companies as large as 800 uh, come in. So uh, you never know what you're going to get, but you have to be prepared, again, with your cadre of drill instructors to be able to uh, get them moving in the right direction. Uh, So as a company commander, you know, you've got about 60, 50 to 60 drill instructors that you're working with and and providing oversight on in addition to the recruits. Um, But drill instructors are just, they're the best in the business. Um, You know, I think everybody, (laughs) Unfortunately, thinks of full metal jacket when they think of a marine, you know. And you know, having talked to certainly countless people from that time, and, and again, my father and grandpa, like I said, both went through recruit training, uh, and they'll tell you it was actually worse back then. But um, same intensity from the drill instructors today, uh, only you know, kind of focused in a more constructive manner. Um, but there's, you know, it's another one of those jobs. Even though it's not in the operating forces, there are no days off. It's a seven day a week cycle. Ah, uh, you're there with the drill instructors before Reveille at zero five and you're there all day until uh, you hit lights out uh, around eight o'clock at night uh, and then you go home and get some sleep and do it again the next day.
0: please forgive me i I you mentioned when you had mentioned to me oversight. so you over you had oversight and uh over authority or rank over drill instructors?
1: yeah, when you're there the, so as a series commander, there's two series uh within a company. So, uh, usually when you first get there, you, you, you're a series commander. So you have half that number and half the recruits in the company. And then when you become a company commander, you've got, uh, you're in charge of the entire company. So you have all the drill instructors and all the recruits, uh, you know, and ultimately you're, you're the one as any commander, anytime you have a commander or you, you, you inherit the title of, or you're bestowed the title of commander, you're responsible for everything that unit or organization does or fails to do. So.
0: Well, thank you very much for that, because I didn't know that's that is really to be in charge of drill instructors. That's pretty impressive. I don't know if I could do that. <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, you know, it's one of those things, again, uh, this is like all all military organizations. Uh, you know, you have a close working relationship with them, so you're not barking orders out to them and stuff. You're working shoulder to shoulder with them. And, and in right. most cases, you know, they just need very broad guidance uh, to be able to do what they need. They, they're really they bear the brunt of, of the work there. They're, they're the hardest working, they did a far harder job than I did. Um, so, you know, they're the ones that are really right there next to the recruits making that transformation from, you know, when they come in the civilians over to, uh, you know, basically trained Marines 12 weeks later.
0: And uh, another aspect is is the obvious one, but uh, it's a lot of teamwork involved, um, especially when you're overseeing this many um, Drone instructors and you know recruits a lot of teamwork cohesiveness so I think that's where um, you know any branch of service is is vitally important and you can take that down to the real world after you get out of the service and I find that you know beneficial to the uh to the outside world after people serve in the uh, military service
1: yeah absolutely and again you know uh i I think people sometimes they think uh you know when young Marines come out of boot camp, you, you know, you hear all the time from people. They're like, Oh, you, you know, they're brainwashed or they're, you know, they want to kill, kill, kill. And, and that's, re- that's just, this is not, you know, the, the reality of it re- really what you're trying to, to produce. And what we do produce is someone who's armed, like you said, with a sense of pride uh, you've instilled confidence in them uh, and, you know, equally important, uh, you know, discipline and attention to detail are critically important. Uh, and those things mean different things to different people some people think those words you know that scares them but you know i give you an example for attention to detail you know growing up my father used to uh you know he always used to give me a hard time because i wouldn't screw the caps back on things like an aspirin bottle right and 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 you know i'd be like well, what why you know why is he riding me for not you know putting the cap tight on a uh, on an aspirin bottle right well, when you get into the Marine Corps and you start working, you realize that pretty much everything you're working with, whether it's explosives or loading weapons or, or an aircraft you're working on that's going to go off on a mission, if you're not doing things precisely, bad things happen. And I mean really bad things right. happen. Uh, and people get hurt and people get killed. Uh, and that's not an overstatement either. You know, I And mean, we'll talk about it probably here in a little bit You know, when you get into combat. And you're doing things like trying to deconflict fires and, and fly aircraft under artillery that's you know uh, being fired at the same time. You're trying to make those exact calculations to offset uh, any kind of you know friendly fire incident. You, you know you if you don't have that sense of attention to detail and discipline second nature, uh, it's like I said, people get killed and and people will
0: die. Yeah, that's uh, that's a great point. Um, it's it's incredible the 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 discipline and the um, I don't know what you could say the discipline of just being in the service I mean you could like you said it could get somebody killed if you're not doing your job it's 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 really incredible and uh, the the flag is definitely a source of pride as well I'm, I'm sure and that's goes without saying for a Marine or anybody in the service any other service
1: yeah I agree you know that there's there's a tremendous uh, sense of, of course, uh, honor and and pride to be able to serve your nation, and, and of course, anything that you know represents the the country, uh, you know, is is near and dear to uh, I think anybody's part that uh, serves in uniform.
0: Absolutely. When my my father passed away in 2012, and I remember when he passed away, he was uh, my mother was presented the flag, and it's uh, I have that in the case, and I also have a World War. Uh, my grandfather was in world war one and have a flag he was in the navy so it's uh it's a sense of pride and it shows that uh you know the people served and and also died for our country so that's uh, there's a lot to be said for that so in uh 2000 colonel wanson was assigned to the third battalion fifth marine regiment at camp pendleton california where he served as rifle company commander and weapons company commander He also served as the Maritime Special Purpose Force Commander of the 34th Marine Expeditionary Unit Special Operations Capable during a seven-month deployment to the Asia-Pacific region in 2002. From 2002 to 2003, he served as the Battalion's Operations Officer and participated in combat operations with the unit during Operation Iraqi Freedom. So this is incredible and uh I'm looking forward to talking about this cuz this is something that we all saw uh firsthand uh pretty much with embedded reporters. We'll get to that a little bit later. So what do you uh remember most about your deployment to the Asia Pacific region?
1: Yeah, that that's my uh so in 2000 uh 2001, obviously, with 9-11, we were working towards a deployment scheduled for, uh, you know, the January 2002, and then uh, when 9-11 hit, uh, obviously, that um, changed the focus of what we would be looking at with that deployment. So, um, it was a busy deployment in 2002, uh, much like any time you're forward deployed with Marines, as we talked about earlier, you, you've got to be constantly uh, ready uh, and on a really tight tether for any possible contingency so uh at that time we were really kind of a, a float on a float force that was uh prepared to go in and, and reinforce uh the forces that were already in afghanistan at that time uh there were other things going on in the region that we were kind of tied to that we had to make sure uh you know we, we were able to respond if necessary um as you mentioned i was the maritime special purpose force commander so there was a uh, about three quarters of the way through the deployment, uh, I had to plan and, and brief out uh, uh, an operation that we were going to go uh, evacuate um, uh, non-combatants from a, a country that will remain nameless mm-hmm. <laughs> at the time. Uh, that uh, we, we thought we were going to need to pull the ambassador out and and a bunch of civilians because of uh, escalation escalation in that country of uh, of hostilities. So. Things like that, you know, they just pop up all the time, no no matter. And I could go through each of the deployments and and what we were initially planning for on each deployment and what we were actually asked to do oftentimes is, you know, things just happen and and you've got to be prepared to respond to them. So that 2002 deployment um, was, uh, you know, was busy. But as soon as we got off the deployment, we landed back in California. Uh, then Colonel Dunford, who, who that late obviously later became General Dunford and, and became the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He was my regimental commander met us at the airfield and said, you know, hey, we got, you know, kind of tongue in cheeky. He's, we got, you know, bad news. I think you're going to have to go right back to the field because it looks like you may be deploying again here soon. Um, and that was kind of the first indications and warnings we had that, uh, you know, an operation in Iraq was, was likely in the next, uh, in the next few months. So we immediately went back to the field and you know started preparing for the next deployment um so it did, you know the the, the rhythm of, of training and deploying uh it never really led up after that
0: wow that so you're getting ready for iraqi freedom so you get um you get to uh the point where you're preparing for iraqi freedom um, was there anything else that you had to do before, um, you know, crossing over or getting into combat, uh, for Rocky freedom?
1: Yeah. You know, it's a different, uh, it, it's a different focus you're looking on at that point. Cause when you go out with a Marine expeditionary unit, uh, and you're afloat, um, a lot of the stuff you're training for. Uh, you know, along the lines of, like I mentioned before, you've got non-combatant evacuation operations. if You've got to go in and reinforce an embassy that may be under threat. Uh, if you've got to do a humanitarian assistance mission, uh, amphibious raids, uh, counter-piracy operations—those are all things you're training to when you when you're going out of a Marine Expeditionary Unit, or at least those are your you know priority missions. When we come back and, you, and you're thinking about doing uh, major combat operations in a place like Iraq in 2003, then shifting gears towards looking at, you know, mine clearing and combined arms uh, operations and breaching defenses and urban combat, which you know we, we, we practice that stuff all the time, but you really have to ramp it up to the point uh, because it's, you know, it's it's a lot. It can be a lot more intense. So you have to be out in the field for that, uh, working on it constantly. And in addition to that, uh, everyone probably remembers, that was at a time where you know we we had to make the assumption that we were going to you know receive some kind of uh, chemical or biological attack. So you're doing a lot of this stuff in um, protective gear and practicing things like decontamination and such like that, and you're trying to do it at night, so Uh, that you can be able to do it at night should you have that that's the hardest time to actually try and and do those kind of things so you're always out in the field and you're and you're just training you know 14 hour days you come home you get some sleep and you're right back out in the field the next day trying to prepare for the worst case scenario
0: yeah and you know you're talking about that you have to be an expert at everything you just said decontamination minefields those are all things you have to be you know, well-versed at before getting into anything with training. And it's just, it's just not like you have to learn a little bit. You have to know it all.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and then some, right. Cause you, you know, even, you know, especially the young Marines, uh, you, you have to know, if you're a machine gunner, you also want to know, Hey, if my mortar man gets killed or injured, I've got to be able to pick up the mortar and, and be able to fire that as well. Or, if you know, if, if somebody, as another system, you've got to be able to operate that. So you're trying to cross train everybody, so you have redundancy on systems, and you've got flexibility. Uh, and then, of course, the first aid alone. You know, even though you have corpsmen there that that can provide a higher level of care, every marine's responsible for you know stopping the bleeding and you know applying tourniquets and and, and putting in IVs and things like that. So you're constantly working on that stuff to make sure that you can get as you know, close to perfect on it as you can prior to actually executing it for real.
0: So uh, basically, you're, you're at the point now where you're getting ready for Iraqi freedom to, you know, cross the border. Uh, what was that like, uh, training and preparing, number one? And number two, when you're finally crossing the border into Iraq, I could, uh, I do remember you. We had talked last year. You said you were uh, dealing with minefields and being shot at while crossing the border. And what was what? First of all, what was it like getting ready to cross over? And then, secondly, what was it like actually combat? Because I watched some video on uh, YouTube last night getting ready for this podcast, just raw video. And it was pretty intense. It was like, this was like raw video of shooting. And I was just like, I can't believe it. I mean, anything can happen. And it just shows you how brave you all are while you're out there fighting. Um, I don't know if I could have handled it, but it's just amazing. So what is it like? Enough of me saying this, but what was it like getting ready and then crossing over? Yeah, I I think,
1: um, you know, everybody's so mission focused. You know, you're not really thinking about, uh, you know, the, the danger that's around you. Uh, and I think I speak for all the Marines uh, that were there with me on it. You know, you're not thinking about, hey, got going to get killed or injured? You're, you're, your big concern is, am I going to be able to, uh, you know, fulfill the task that, that everybody's counting on me to do? And will we be able to reach the, the key objectives that we've been assigned there? Because, you know, like you said, you know, the eyes of the world at that time are all lasered into that one point on the map. Uh, and, you know, when when you're in the 1st Marine Division with the proud history that it has, right, from Guadalcanal and uh, Okinawa and, and Peleliu and Quezon and, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right, um, failure is not an option, uh, you know, either as a Marine or in the 1st Marine Division. So uh, that's the big concern is you want to make sure when, when people wake up in the morning and they turn the TV on, uh, they see that, you know, Marines are standing on whatever objective had been assigned. So that that I think, you know, we had and the objectives that we had for that opening night were to seize, uh, they, they were actually strategic level objectives, were the gas and oil separation plants because there was uh, indications and warnings that, you know, the enemy was going to um, destroy those much like Saddam had done during the first Gulf War mm-hmm. uh, to, you know, kind of create an environmental disaster and, and you know, that, that helps kind of blacken things out to make it more difficult to bring, uh, you know, aviation assets and stuff into the fight. So we, it was imperative that we make our way through that minefield quick and get to those gas mineral separation plants and secure them before they could be destroyed. So you're, you're constantly rehearsing, rehearsing, rehearsing up to the last minute. You're doing comm checks, weapon checks. You're thinking of every possible contingency because invariably something will change as it did we got into the minefield. Uh, but again, in a nutshell, very focused, everybody knew, knew the, mm. you know, the importance of the job they had to do. And it was just a matter of executing it when, when, when the time
0: came. So you cross over the border into Iraq. Uh, what kind of resistance did you, uh, encounter? Cause, uh, sometimes you would uh, watch the news and it seemed like it was a breeze and obviously it wasn't, uh, what was the resistance like? And, um, uh, you know, with the minefields, I mean, it's incredible to navigate through minefields. You did it in the, in the dead of night or did you do it during the day?
1: No, it was in the dead of night. It's uh, as I always say, it's never good to have to go through a minefield. (laughs) There's no, uh, you know, uh, and that's, and that's not a proverbial minefield. That's a real one. Right. Right. So, uh, uh, you know, we had gotten orders, um, you know, because sometimes you have to attack uh, or launch operations earlier based on the intelligence that you have coming in and, and what the enemy's doing and such. So so we had uh, s- uh, moved up the assault, uh, I think, eight to 12 hours earlier than we had anticipated. Um, and, uh, you know, so we, we went that night, went into the minefield. There was a unit in front of us, our, our sister unit, uh, 1st Battalion, 5th Marines, uh, went through first. and. Uh, we, monitor, we were monitoring that on the radio because you can only shoot one uh, or push one unit through a lane at a time. It's kind of a narrow lane that the engineers clear out there. And uh, as soon as they made it through, uh, they were in contact with the enemy immediately. So we were monitoring that. You know, it was very calm. And I, Again, I was monitoring on the radio, and I, and I know my counterparts over there. So to listen to them, you know, calling in uh, air support directing uh, armor assets on, on enemy targets. And, I, you know, it was, it was very professionally done. Um, and then we, we came in right behind them. And uh, I think I, t- I talked to you about before. Our, our, our command vehicle that I was in, um, it, uh, it hit something. It, it didn't, unfortunately, nothing exploded. I don't, I don't even think it was a mine. It was something. But the halon extinguishers inside the vehicle went off which is designed to actually smother everything inside in case you do hit a mine. It, you know, it mm-hmm. obviously sucks the oxygen out of there. So that knocked us out, uh, immediately. Cause we, you know, we pretty much were choking trying to get out of the back of the vehicle, um, with all the hail on in there. Um, uh, but that was really the only hiccup that the battalion dealt with, uh, that entire thing. Everything else went pretty, pretty smooth. Um, made it through. Okay. Came out the other side, uh, immediately went into the fight, uh, but we're able to rapidly secure those gas and oil separation plants in short order and, uh, you know, consolidated on the objective and we're ready to push forward to the next objective the following morning.
0: So, well, uh, we're in 2022 now, and do you ever like look back and just say, wow, or I mean, not wow, but do you ever look back and say, it's incredible that you went through that experience. Uh, I just find it, uh, unbelievable that you would go through a minefield and then the helion would you know uh erupt inside the tank and or the, the vehicle you're in and then you have to deal with that as well as being in the dead of night and it's just do you ever look back and say just wow i do but uh yeah, I'm sure I will after I retire
1: and I, and I stop and probably reflect on it more. Uh, you know, there, there's so many of those kind of stories, you know, at the second tour I'm sure I'll hit a couple of those things we go forward, you know, every time you go out on the road there in 2006, you're essentially trying to navigate a minefield with all the, the IEDs on the road there. So, um, you know, uh, there's always something that you're encountering every, every tour you go on, particularly the operational ones, when you go forward, you're always coming, running into things like you're like, almost surreal at times, like you say, you know? Um, But again, the the thing that I always think back on instead of like, wow, I can't believe I did that is it's the professionalism of the young Marines that are there Mm -hmm. and the NCOs that are leading them is just absolutely incredible to see, see them do things. You know, you see an 18, 19, 20 year old young Marine out there doing things uh, that just are incredible um, you know selflessness and and the, and the uh, you know the courage to do those kind of things is just it, it, that's the stuff that really I, I think back on and, and really sticks with me.
0: Wow. so in two th- in 2005, Colonel Watson was assigned to the first Marine Expeditionary Force where he served as operational planning team leader in the future operations section. In 2006, he deployed to Iraq for 12 months in support of Operation Iraqi Freedom. In May of 2007, where he led planning for multiple operations to include three of the largest and most vital actions in Al Anbar province that year. And in 2007, Colonel Wansa was assigned to the U.S. Special Operations Command, Tampa, Florida, where he served as chief special operation forces assessment branch during this period, he led the training and education assessments of all special operations force component commands to help resolve issues and shortfalls in the special operations community and enhance operational readiness. I'm very impressed with your uh, being at the U.S. Special Operations Command in Tampa. Uh, you hear about that from time to time on the news. Um, that is very impressive uh, to be in that situation. We have a few other areas as well as we uh get to this podcast, but what was that uh, experience like in Tampa, Florida? Obviously, you're there to do a job, but un- nonetheless, uh, very impressive.
1: Yeah, coming out of Iraq in, in 2007, uh, I had been approached um, by some of the, the First Marine Division leader, or actually, I'm sorry, it was First Marine Expeditionary Force leadership asked if I were, was interested in going down to Tampa because they were trying to expand the number of Marine officers down there and the Marine presence, um, uh, because we had worked a lot more with special operations forces in Iraq and, and, um, uh, between my maritime special port uh, purpose force, um, uh, experience back in 2002. And, and then I had, uh, worked quite a bit, uh, you know, with the planning of operations in Iraq in 2006 with, um, Various members of the special operations community. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, you know, one of the candidates that they said, "Hey, would you like to go down there?" And and I I thought it was great. You know, the the special operations community is a very just a really professional group. Uh, you know, highly trained. Uh, always a pleasure to to interact with them. Very focused on the mission. So to be able to, to spend a couple years down there and work with them and help them, uh, you know, help them refine their their broader training and readiness in, in preparation for what they do overseas. And this was also the time when Marine Special Operations Command, which is a subcomponent of, of U.S. Special Operations Command, right. was coming up online. That was part of, of what I was trying to do down there was uh, help get them to, up to par uh, to, to what the other components, Army Special Forces and, and the SEALs and such, were doing for their training. So it was really a rewarding experience. And, uh, yeah, I, I'll look back on that time fondly.
0: So you're you're in Tampa. That just seems like uh, every day is not boring. Every day is not the same, and every day you're probably taking notes, um, debriefing, and things like that. Not to get too technical, but I think that uh, you're definitely. Um, it, it's incredible how uh, a, a day would be at uh, U.S. Uh, Special Operations Command.
1: <laughs> yeah, and Tom Brady wasn't down there yet either. He so, wasn't. Uh, oh wow, he no, wasn't. No, wow. That was- that was that was when he was still uh he was still on our side so
0: yeah uh, Craig and I are uh, big uh, New England Patriot fans but uh, yes Tom Brady is down in New England um, we are Patriot fans one hundred percent so Tampa is uh, you hear about that uh, the command center in Tampa um, also uh, Colonel Watson had other distinguished areas of his career but uh, here are a couple which I found rather um, fascinating so in two thousand twelve. He attended Yale University, New Haven, Connecticut, as the first Marine Corps fellow in the International Security Studies Brady Johnson program in Grand Strategy. So you've gone, you've gone into the deployment, you've gone into the field to fight. you've been into the Special Operations Command. You've done some other things after Specials Command, but you're now going to uh, Yale University in New Haven, Connecticut as part of a program in Grand Strategy for international Security. And uh, that must have been a new, uh, new, um, you know, area where you, you were ready to uh, give your expertise.
1: Yeah, it was a really good uh, opportunity. That was, um, you know, uh, the, the equivalent of going to top-level school uh, for uniformed military. So, um, you know, I'm at the Naval War College right now, and I, and I help teach in the top-level school here. That is a, the, if you take a fellowship at Yale or Harvard or Johns Hopkins or, or some of the other ones, they all have these grand strategy type programs that, um, uh, you know, you compete for and, and, and you're, uh, if you go there, it's, it's just an incredible experience because, you know, it helps you look at things through a different lens where you're learning from some of the best in the world, uh, on other elements of national power across, you know, the political, diplomatic, informational economic uh that you know sometimes uniformed military don't get exposed to enough so i i really left there with a much better understanding and a much better ability to process um you know how to how conflicts kind of arise and, and how to end conflict so mm. you know my first stop when i look at the situation in ukraine right now isn't how many tanks we're going to be able to destroy or you know or how many russians are going to be killed you know the start and stop point is on whether there'll be success or failure. There is a much broader, more complex, uh, you know, set of uh, circumstances and things that need to be looked at. So places like that can really help you do that. And, and of course I, they had me there as well because I was able to bring a military perspective. Uh, I was the, you know, the person in that grand strategy program that had active duty military experience. And I could say, you know, well, here's how this impacts me if I'm in Yemen uh, and you know I need to conduct this type of mission or if I'm in this country and you know so I, it was beneficial I think for both sides to to have me there for a year
0: so you were providing uh expertise and also just a a, a view from the Marine Corps to the students at Yale uh, so basically you were uh you know for people that were going through this was a this is that's a tremendous opportunity um Craig because you're actually you know, it, you actually worked at Yale university I and mean, that's, that's quite, quite an honor.
1: Yeah, it was again. I, you know, I, I used to joke that I used to, I joked to them. I spelled Yale Y-A-I-L, you know, uh, before going there. So they, you know, that was kind of a self depreciating, you know, joke and stuff. But, uh, we, I, I really got along well with, uh, you know, the students there, most of them, um, were, uh, graduate students to going through the grand strategy program. And th- and they'll all go off to do, you know, just amazing things, just the caliber of students they have there. You know, the, 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 you know, a lot of them are going to be senators and CEOs and such, but, uh, they were, they were great on coming in, uh, after hours, after class and sitting down and saying, Hey, can you explain to me? I don't understand this about Afghanistan or why are we doing this in Iraq? and uh, and it was just a great opportunity to be able to help them better understand, hey, this is what it's like when, you you know, when you're in that position and, and why you may see these things and why we might, you know, conduct these types of operations. And I learned from them as well. So it was, it was just a really good relationship.
0: Excellent. And you had mentioned uh, James Mattis earlier. You had worked under his command and he was the uh, secretary of defense for uh, President Trump during a uh, portion of his administration. And uh, what was it like being under the command of General Mattis? Um, I know you've spoken very highly of him. Uh, What was that like? And uh, did you get any attributes from him uh, when you were under his command that you use today?
1: Yeah, he he's wonderful. Uh, just a great uh, great leader to serve under. Uh, I, I actually had him talk to our students. Uh, our, uh, you know, he talked to them for a full two over two hours uh, via Zoom from the Hoover Insti- Institute uh, mm. last year. Uh, but that's that's how he is. He's always looking for an opportunity to teach, coach, and mentor. You know, young leaders and certainly young Marines. So. Um, he's cut from the same cloth as you know General Kelly and General Dunford, uh, as I think everybody knows. They they were both in the recent administration as, or the previous administration, and I've, I've worked for them as well. They're all warrior scholars. Certainly General Mattis is, is known for that. Um, uh, he, he it's that knowledge uh, combined with the you know the courage that he shows on the battlefield that he's known for, and it just that really really instills a sense of confidence and subordinates when mm. when you see somebody like that out there. And uh you know, he's he's so uh you know, I don't know, I guess I don't know, I'm honest, but he's he's kinda like Patton without the attitude. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but the Bedouin's just you know, he he he's very humble uh but he you know he is one of those people that's the smartest person in the room. Um, and then, you know, he, he'll he go out on the battlefield and he is the one with blood on his uniform and such. I think half of his personal security detail was, you know, killed or killed or wounded in Iraq. So it's not like he's Jeez. not right up there, right on the very tip of the, you know, the spear. Um, there's a funny story. I remember we were in a really heavy firefight once in, in 2003, This was like day four of, of, of one major engagement after the other. And, and he used to drive around in a light armored vehicle. And I remember he pulled into our position under fire, uh, and I I left the vehicle I was in. I put the radio and I walked over because I thought it was a, a part of an LAR unit and he hops out, uh, with a smile on his face and said, you know, Hey, Major Watson, you know, how are things going? You know, just, just that kind of, uh, under fire, calm, cool, collected. Um, right up there with the troops r- really sends the right message to, uh, to the young Marines. And, and like I said before, really kind of uh, helps instill a, a sense of, of calm and, and confidence in, in a very hectic, dangerous environment.
0: That's a tremendous story. And it's amazing how we go through life, certain chapters of our life and, you know, you were under his command or, you know, uh, just the, uh, uh you know, people who um, do things, and they and they they encounter people that they look up to, and you still have maybe I have some attributes in the field I'm in um, from people I worked with and under in the past, not in the military, but in in the the field that I'm in, and uh, I still get things from them. I use things from them, and I use those folks as my mentors or i want to be like them so i can see why you're, you speak very glowingly about uh general mattis i find that that was a great story about the uh coming into uh, under fire with uh you know you know he's coming over to you and he says major Watson, uh, how's it going it's just just that shows the type of person he is um great story Um, In 2013, Colonel Watson was assigned. This is the one I really like. He was assigned to the office of the chief of Naval operations at the Pentagon, where he served as deputy amphibious warfare branch. While serving in this capacity, he managed several major programs and helped lead budgetary enhancement and procurement efforts for all U S Navy amphibious shipping systems, service connector craft. In 2014, Colonel Watson served as commanding officer, Marine Corps Tactics and Operations Group in 29 Palms, California. In this period, he led advanced training and education for hundreds of Marines and dozens of units within the Marine Corps ground combat element. So I went to school at the University of Maryland. I went to D.C. many times. Uh, Washington, D.C. is a tremendous city. Uh, The Pentagon is incredible. Great history in D.C. Uh, it's, It's awesome. But uh, I'm I'm really impressed by the fact that you were at the Pentagon. And I think, the, doesn't the Pentagon have like 17 miles of hallways? I, I remember that from a, years back, that they have 17 miles of hallways. But nonetheless, that must have been, uh, you must have walked by some pretty impressive people. I'd be starstruck if I were there.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think you're one of the few people that, uh, that I've heard actually said that they like the Pentagon. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's... Um, you, you know, the Pentagon is uh, that's where, where that's kind of the um, center point for all things related to the Department of Defense. Right? Uh, it's a huge building. All the services have their headquarters in there. Uh, there's a lot of people. Obviously, as you correctly said, so I think it still is the largest building in the world. Certainly, at one mm-hmm. time uh, it was the largest building in the world as far as square footage. Wow. But um, Uh, It's, you know, it's a fast paced environment. Uh, As you mentioned, I I spent, uh, you know, we shuttled between there and we would go up on Capitol Hill quite a bit when, you know, we we had to uh, present information to uh, the House Armed Services Committee or Senate Armed Services Committee or meet with, um, you know, the one of the offices of legislative affairs up there to provide updates to uh, a a senator or congressman that wanted information on a a particular program. so it was busy times shuttling back and forth there. But, uh, I mean, I look back on it. Obviously, I, I, I worked very closely with the chief of naval operations office and, and, and the commandant's office. So it was, um, it was rewarding work. But, uh, I think the hardest part, and anyone who's worked in DC would probably tell you the same thing is just getting in and out of the city in the morning, uh, makes Boston traffic look like, uh, <laughs> yes. into Kansas. So, uh, that was never fun. So I had to get. I would always leave it, and I was fortunate. I was inside the Beltway. I had a place in, in Alexandria, but I it, nice. I yeah. I would get in at, I would get in probably. I would be at my desk at the Pentagon at six in the morning, uh, and I wouldn't leave there till usually seven at night. And then it was still forty five minutes. And there's and there's people at the Pentagon that are working longer hours than that.
0: Yeah, I remember when I was at the University of Maryland. This was uh, eighty six through eighty eight. Um, I'd go to DC a lot and take the Metro. Um, and I remember going on the Metro and seeing, uh, dozens of people in military uniforms, taking the the train, the Metro to and from wherever they were going. And I found that, I found that fascinating back in the time. Now that I look back on it, it was really, it was really cool. It's just things you don't see, you know, in other cities. And I find that it's probably still like that today, but. Um, back then it was really like, you're seeing these people, they're going to work just like, uh, you know, I was going to school. It was, it was pretty impressive.
1: Yeah. It's just a lot of, uh, yeah. And that's just the Pentagon. That's just that one area, right. When you start thinking yeah. about oh, no good, because DC is one of those cities that everybody kind of flows in in the morning and and then quite a few, perhaps more than any other city, that the, the city almost becomes a ghost town at night. Right. With yeah. the exception of a few places. So, the, the, the traffic there and, and the congestion and stuff is, um, I mean, it, you know, you tack that on to your regular work day and, and it, you know, that that's the kind of stuff that wears people down no matter what organization you're, you know, or, or agency you're working for.
0: You know, I have, I have a story. My wife and I, we went to um, D.C. in 2009 and we went to Arlington National Cemetery and we walked. We walked from the train. We walked, I think it's the, the, uh, the Lincoln Bridge that takes you to uh, Arlington National Cemetery. I, I believe it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I remember walking out. This is an unbelievable story. And uh, we're, we're on our vacation, and all of a sudden we see a hearse driving up. It's a U.S. Army hearse. It was a green hearse, and it said U.S. Army. And you could clearly see a flag-draped coffin walk, uh, dry, You know, in the back of the hearse. And I remember my wife and I just standing there, like to honor that person who had passed away, uh, who died, and they were going to bury him in Arlington National Cemetery. And that 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 image just sticks with me to this day. When I when I hear about um, you know soldiers dying in combat or in training exercises, it's it's incredible. Um, you know that one moment will ever forever be etched in my in my brain because it was just. Um, you know, we're doing our thing and people are dying. And I found that to be very, um, not, it was very emotional. It was very, it was really, you know, it was really, really hard to watch.
1: Yeah, I agree. And, you know, Arlington, I think holds a special place in many people's hearts, you know, it's, uh, it's, uh, somber, but at at the same time, when you go there, you, you know, you do feel, uh, various different emotions and, um, you know, they always seem to be uh, burying somebody there. If they're not, uh, you know, a retiree, or, you know, that's, that's passed away. So somebody who's been killed recently and in the conflicts overseas, but uh, you know, the army, the army kind of manages that there and they do a phenomenal job of, of just really keeping that place. Um, yeah. You know, it's, it's just an amazing place to go to. It's, it's so well kept and, and so well run. Um, it just, you know, re it's just filled with respect. You know, when, when you, when you walk in there, you just, you can feel it.
0: And uh, I'm going to get on a soapbox here for about one minute. We went to the tomb of the unknown soldier. And Mm -hmm. I remember we were standing there and we were paying uh, our respects and, you know, you're supposed to stand silent there as the, you know, the, the, the guards are watching the tomb. And I remember two instances where somebody was smoking a cigarette and somebody came over, a soldier came over and re- pretty much just like lambasted this person to put it out. And the second one was, person was on his cell phone, but he was talking not in the front of the line, but he was talking in the back, and they, they lambasted him to get the, get off that phone. And I, that that enraged me so much when I saw that when they were doing that. They could not even have any respect for what was going on there. And I don't mean to get on a soapbox, but that just... It just it showed total disrespect for for that for that place.
1: Yeah, it's un, it's, it's unfortunate. Um, you know that kind of thing happens, but uh, you know again, I think I've, I've seen that kind of thing happen uh, when I've been up there. It, the army and the soldiers that uh, they're kind of you know. Uh, working that you know, at Arlington, they, they do a really good job and they're very respectful and they're very professional. And, and I think they handle that as well as they can there. Um But yeah, I, I can understand your frustration for sure.
0: And also this Memorial day, I don't know what it was about this Memorial day. I was very, I wasn't uh, this, this Memorial day meant a lot for some reason. I don't know why I bought flags and I put them in the front of my driveway for the weekend, just to show uh respect to those who have, uh, you know, given the ultimate sacrifice. I found that, uh, this year, for some reason, I felt more um, more in tune to do something uh, that I had not done in the past, and uh, I have those flags for future years. So I always want to, uh, you know, pay homage and pay also uh, respects to those who had uh, lost their lives. So um, didn't mean to get on the soapbox there, but I I feel better that I got it off my chest. So <laughs> not, not at all. Um, and we're gonna go right now. So Colonel Watson, right now. This is extraordinary, too. He currently serves as a professor of military science at the U.S. Naval War College in Newport, Rhode Island. He taught strategy and policy at the graduate level for two years, helping mid-career officers master the complex interrelational relationship between policy, strategy and operations. He currently teaches at the Maritime Advanced Warfighting School, the Navy's premier advanced planning course. That provides graduate-level education in strategic decision-making, complex problem-solving, and development of large-scale joint operations. So the U.S. Naval War College is definitely it piqued my interest when, I, uh, when you gave me your bio. And what is that like, uh, being at that college? Um, that is really, like, incredible.
1: Yeah, it's it's a it's a wonderful place to work and uh, the history here alone is uh something every time you drive in the gate uh that just kind of grabs you. Uh it's the oldest of the the service war colleges. Um and uh you know, uh there's every time I walk down the hall I have to walk by a picture of Admiral Spruance and uh you know, all, all the all the famous uh presidents that uh served here. Um it's, you know, it, it's humbling is, re- is really the word I'm looking for to, to be able to come in here every day, uh, and, you know, try to convey to the officers and, uh, you know, we, we, we have officers here, we have military officers from the services, but we also have international officers from uh, 90 different countries from around the world. We have, uh, I forget how many different agencies, uh, FBI, uh, Department of Homeland Security. Mm-hmm. Dozens and dozens that all will send people here every year. So uh, they're all going to go back out and do great things when they leave here. Uh, you know where they're headed because the people that teach here have been there. And that's one of the reasons we're here is to try to help convey, you know, here's how you apply uh, what you're going to learn here when you get out to the operating forces. So we have PhD uh, PhDs on staff that are some of the best in the business on teaching, uh, again, strategy and policy and history and all those things that uh, people need to understand to, to uh, be able to, you know, uh, relate to the larger picture that, uh, is, like I said before, why, why conflicts exist and, you know, how you, how you succeed in them. Uh, and then you've got the military, the uniform side that has the experience out there uh, that can bring 30 years or 20 years of experience to say, hey, when you go back out, here's how you take what you've learned here uh, and apply that whether you're at the Pentagon or whether you're a commander of a uh, you know a unit. Um, so it's really rewarding to be able to see them come through here, and then knowing that they're going to go go out and do great things, and, and you know, hopefully, you've armed them with enough to to be successful.
0: So I have a couple questions here. Totally, uh, I hope I don't catch you off guard here, but I have a couple questions. What did you do for in your off time when you were on deployment or in your combat? Did you do anything to? um get your mind off it did you do anything just to get away from uh the the situations and the uh areas you were in just for a little bit just to uh reprogram your brain
1: uh yeah i think it just kind of depends on where you're at depending on the deployment right so if if you're on a marine expeditionary unit again if you're on board ship and, and you're serving as uh you know that you know if you're the theater reserve there, or such that there there isn't always a lot of time to, uh, you know, you're not doing it. You're on ship. You're you're training and, and prepared to go ashore. So as I mentioned before, uh, you know deployments often don't go the way that you plan for it. So like in 2011, for instance, as we left the the pier in San Diego, the initial plan was yeah you got to pre- be prepared to be called into Afghanistan. Like the last three units before us had done. Um, but we had three major exercises that we had been preparing for, for, uh, you know, months. Uh, and we were off the coast of Peleliu the night before, you know, Peleliu's uh, about you know halfway across the Pacific and prepared to go ashore because my battalion had actually fought there in World War II and we were going to lay a wreath and, and set in a monument there. And that was the same night uh, that the earthquake and tsunami hit in Japan. So immediately We were ordered to drop everything you're doing, head towards uh, mainland Japan as fast as possible to help out with humanitarian uh, assistance operations. Um, After two days, we were then redirected. We we didn't even get close to Japan. We were redirected to make best possible speed to get uh, into the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden uh, because this was the start of what's known as the Pan-Arab Revolt, or people probably know it as Arab Spring. Uh, where there were a lot of direct threats to U.S. embassies and personnel in the region. Um, so we bypassed everything and went immediately there. None of that was part of the original plan, but that's a classic example of, you know, when you go out on deployment, things change rapidly, and you've got to be able to adjust to whatever scenario, uh, you know, pops up.
0: Wow. And uh, another question, have you ever thought about um, running for political office? Never. Okay, that that was an easy question there, but I think you have a tremendous. Uh, if somebody came asking you for to be part of uh, administration, would you think about doing that? Because your your knowledge is incredible. Uh,
1: no, I, I don't think that's for me. I gotcha. think um, you know, I for, for me, uh, anything I can do to assist. I, I you know, in, in academia has been a great experience here for the last few years. Um, I, I mean, again, I, I, I take it, you know general kelly said this I, I brought general kelly in actually the other day um and he talked about some of his experiences you know when he was uh, working in the previous administration and such but you know he he put it great he's like look you know i'm not political uh I, I guess i i would if someone had offered me to come work in their administration i probably it wouldn't matter what side of the aisle it was or everything i just want to serve and i want to help people um and make the world a better place and i think whatever job uh that you know uh, emerges where you have an opportunity to do that. Um, You're crazy not to think about it at least, you know? Um, So, but I, you know, the political side, no, that's not something that really interests me, but I I would like to do something like a really, where I'd like to go following my Marine Corps career is more uh, on the NGO side and, and, you know, doing something that would help, uh, you know, there's so much, there's so much stuff overseas. I'm preaching to the choir here, you know, Mm -hmm. The world is starting starvation and the conflict and everything and and you know you just you want to do more. Every I think everybody does want to do more. Uh, So there's never a time, even when you're going to retire, that you're like, oh, hey, I'm just going to you know kick back on my uh, you know lake in New Hampshire. Uh, I just don't think I have that in me, and I don't think a lot of people have it in because you've seen so much and you just want to make change. I think I speak for most Marines and, and service members that you know that. They have difficulty putting that stuff behind them because they just, you know, you just can't rest knowing that there's that many people in the world who are suffering every single day. And you get snapshots of it, obviously, when you mm-hmm. see the, 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 the stuff coming back from Ukraine uh, in places like Syria and such. But that stuff happens all over the world. Uh, and we really this we're entering a time where, you know, we've all kind of got to try to figure out ways to, to do better with what we have.
0: Yeah, we may have to. uh, Maybe you may have to jump on the podcast again. Maybe somewhere down the road, we can talk about other things with uh, Ukraine and um, other areas. I have one other question. It's an easy one. Um, (laughs) Did you see Top Gun two and uh, what did you think? And which which one did you think was the better movie?
1: (laughs) That's an easy one. I, I did see Top Gun too. I, I found it entertaining. Uh, again, I try not to be one of those people that watches it and, and critiques every single thing. Like you know, we 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 would never do that mission, uh, which which we wouldn't uh, because we, there's a different way to to crack that nut. Um, but you know, I, I thought it was entertaining. I thought they did uh, as good of a job as they could with the storyline. Um, so you know, and again, it generated interest in you know, people were back in the theaters and such and watching it. So that, that's good in and of itself. Um, but yeah, I'm, yeah, I'll, I'll leave it at that. I, I won't talk about the football scene or any of that other.
0: <laughs> no, no. I, uh, I saw, I saw, I loved it. I thought it was a great movie. I love the way they, uh, weaved in some areas from the first movie into it. I'm not going to give too much way uh, too much away for it, but, uh, it was a uh, it was a great movie, and it was actually the first movie that I saw in a theater in like thirteen years. So I was it, oh wow it, it had to drag me out to go see it, but it was uh, it was phenomenal. You know what the real cool part was that movie? You know was out done before the pandemic started, so it just sat there for two years, and uh, it's incredible. Like Tom Cruise, man, he killed it.
1: He did, yeah. No, he's he's great.
0: And then uh, they had uh, Rooster, uh, um, the the uh, uh, the Son of Goose, I mean, that was just like, that was pretty cool. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, there's another movie coming out near the end of the year. I think it's coming out around Thanksgiving time frame. It's a true story. It's based on a true story, actually, about uh, two pilots um, in the Korean War uh, that were close friends. Uh, uh, you know, one's African-American, and, uh, you know, and, and, and they, they really bond together at a time, obviously, when, um, you know, uh, this was this was... You know, at a, at a difficult time where that that wasn't just you know sure. like like we have today, right? Where we don't even try we try not to think about that kind of thing at all. It's just second nature. But uh, you know, r- really amazing story. I hadn't read the book on it before, and just a phenomenal. I'm glad it's being brought to light so that other people can see. Um, you know, kind of you know, get, this is the way we we are in the military now, right? Does you know those kind of things matter? They don't matter anymore. Uh, you know, it, it, who's on your left and your right. It's just, it's, is it a Marine? That's all that I care about.
0: Yeah. So, well, Craig, uh, I know you was Craig, but I'm going to call you Colonel Watson. Uh, I want to thank you for joining me on my second episode of, uh, my podcast Hodgepod. Um, it's been a great hour and I, I really appreciate your, uh, your, your spending the time to do this. It was a fascinating hour And I am looking forward to maybe getting you back on it somewhere down the road about something else. But uh, thank you so much for your time, and also thank you for your service.
1: Well, I appreciate it, and and hopefully, everything that I talked uh, about—that's in—you know, people look at that not as me doing it. uh, That that I I did it and and talked about it from the perspective of all Marines that are out there. So, uh, you know, I appreciate the service that they do, and hopefully, everybody else does as well.